John chapter 4 and verse 17. Now that's incorrect. Verse 43. John 4, 43. Let's read verse 43 to the end of the chapter. Now, after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had, was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him. And told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And himself believed, and his whole house. This again, the second sign that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea unto Galilee. May God give us understanding on his word uh, this morning. We're told in verse 49 that the nobleman said unto Christ, Sir, come down before my child dies. Sir, come down before my child dies. Now we've seen two great defining acts at the beginning of Christ's ministry. I've said to you, several times, that the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they mainly focus almost on only two years of Christ's ministry, the second and third year after the death of John the Baptist. The apostle John here in this gospel, who was very close to Christ and near him at the beginning, sees things in the early days of Jesus' ministry as it just broke out in Galilee and he records them for us, especially these great signs and miracles that reveal so much of who Christ is and how he saves. And we saw him as the great bridegroom Messiah who gives the wine of gospel joy to his people. And then we saw him in the fiery heat of God's holiness, who is the one who will cleanse his temple and church. And both are needed, and both must happen in a Christian and in a church. We are given the wine of joy, but we are also 
to be cleansed and so much the church be cleansed. Jesus defines his own ministry in his first sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth when he preaches on the prophet Isaiah in the 61st chapter. And he said that he has come to proclaim liberty to the captives and the day of Jubilee, the day of redemption, but also, he says, the day of the vengeance of our God from Isaiah 61. That's the text that summarizes what the gospel is. We must deal with Christ because we live in a world in which a day of redemption is announced and a day of the vengeance of God. There is the wine and joy of the gospel and there is the fiery purity of a God who consumes sin. And he will either consume it in Jesus on the cross for you But if that doesn't happen to you, then it must be consumed in you yourself. But it will be burnt up. So we see these two big things about Jesus' character as he reveals the glory of God to his people in this gospel. The wine of joy and the fiery cleansing of the temple. Now, these show us that Jesus is God. And that's the profound emphasis of this Gospel of John. And it still is shocking. It still is shocking. Jesus is God. He isn't like God. He isn't from God. He isn't God's greatest missionary prophet. He isn't even God's son in the sense that God made him or that he comes from God and as the son he has a right to tell us about God more than anyone else he's not son in that way he's son because he is God he is called the son because he has the nature of his father so son isn't less than father son is like father it son is the same as father in nature. That's what John is telling the world when he writes this gospel. And it is immense and shocking and incredible. Jesus, the man, is God. And he alone can save mine and your soul from darkness and bondage and sin and guilt and death, as we're about to see here. He alone can do that. He alone has the power to do it. And these signs, the seven of them, show us him doing it as God. And it reveals to us different ways in which he does it. And different things you and I must know about the way he does it. You will notice there as we read it, that in the last verse of the chapter it says, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. I think he's connecting that to the last time Jesus was in Cana at the wedding. And he said a similar thing. He said, this was the first sign. He says here, this is the second sign. So this is the second sign properly. I preached a a couple of sermons on what he did at the temple. And that was certainly significant. And it had a prophetic sign in it. But it wasn't a miracle like these are. This is the second. Now, it's not the second miracle he did. Um, we're told in, in the prior chapters here, and I pointed it out to you, when he was in Jerusalem, he did many signs at the Feast of Passover. But John's, John's pointing out here that he goes there and stirs all that up. But when he comes into Galilee here, they've only seen one sign, and it wasn't a lot of people. There was one sign. So when he does this and news of it spreads... This is the second sign in his Galilean ministry. And we see in this sign, as he heals a boy, we see in it that Christ alone can remove our sin. More specifically, if I put it this way, Christ alone can remove the fever and disease of our sin. That's the specific glory that's revealed in this miracle. 
That's why he does it, and that's the impression it is to have. If we just see his power, we might see the sign, but we don't see the thing signified, if you understand that. There is a miracle, but there is something being taught in the miracle, and that's the thing that you and I need to see. He removes the disease and the fever and the virus of sin, and he does it by his own power and word. And John is telling us that is who Jesus is. He's the only one who actually can do that. I want to consider this sign under three headings as it comes out in the passage. First, a desperate father. Second, a powerful savior. And third, a believing faith. A desperate father, a powerful savior, and a believing faith. So let's consider, first of all, the desperate father. After Jesus is in uh, Jerusalem at that feast for several days, he returns north, and some of you will be aware that he goes through the land of Samaria that wasn't Jewish, and no Jew would ever go there. He met a woman at a well there and actually saved her in the same way, by his own word. She believed his word, and others in Samaria actually believed his word. Uh, that's remarkable in itself, that he is not broken out in Galilee yet. The Jews haven't even accepted him, but he goes uh, to these enemies, these Samaritans, and they are actually believing, and significantly, and remember this, they believe him without seeing a miracle. And that's the difference between the Samaritans and the Jews. And that may be the difference between some Christians and other Christians. There is something in God's people here, the Jews. Every time they encounter him, they're demanding a sign. Outward, formalistic display of power. Their concern isn't their heart. Their concern is, prove to us who you are, and that you have the right to govern our kingdom and church. They're very concerned with the outward, and they say, show us a sign. The Samaritans believed just because Jesus peered into the heart of that woman and he had the ability to know what was in it. And that was enough for them. Come, see the man that told me everything I ever did. That's what needs changed the heart. It doesn't matter if Jesus is doing these other signs. They don't touch the heart. And I'll say more on that in the sermon. They definitely don't touch the heart by themselves. We need our hearts opened before Jesus. But he went through Samaria, and that's what happened when he was there. Now, he comes to Cana again. He doesn't go to where he grew up. Uh, he, he, John tells us why. That a prophet isn't honored in his own country. There's just something in the hometown and the home country of Jesus that is going to despise him and his message, and he, he knows it, <clears throat> and he doesn't go there right away. There are other occasions that he goes there, and his expectations and knowledge of what they will do are correct. They react very badly to what he preaches. They react very badly to his convicting preaching, and they react very badly to him telling them that the Gentiles are more ripe for salvation than them, and they actually want to kill him. He doesn't go there, but he goes back to Cana where he had been at that wedding and where one of his disciples, Nathaniel, lives. So he comes back to Cana in verse 46, to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Makes sense in a way that he would do that because word will have spread from that wedding. Um, People will talk about a remarkable event like that. He goes back to Cana. And as he arrives there and arrives in that region of Galilee, we're told that that they received him in verse 45. The Galileans received him, having seen all the signs he did in Jerusalem at the feast. So there's beginning to be this interest and at least an outward receptivity in their hearts. You would be interested too if someone uh, arrived in in the denomination right now and they started performing miracles at the synod and you heard about it. That would pique your, your interest if someone was claiming that. 
And they were expecting a Messiah. And the Gospels, all four of them, are very clear that people were discussing this. Is he the prophet that Moses told us about? Is he the Messiah? Is he one of the prophets risen from the dead or sent by God like Elijah or Jeremiah? Who is this who is speaking in a way and has abilities to do things in a way that the common man and the common rabbis could not do? Who is this? Has God sent us another prophet? So they're certainly interested. And when people are interested in that way, initially there's, there's a reception. There's, they want to hear what he has to say and they come near him and there's excitement around his arrival. Uh, but Jesus decides to act in a very specific way around that general excitement. And it's that a man arrives who's not from Cana, <clears throat> but who's from Capernaum, and who had probably heard also reports about what Jesus did at the feast. And he is in uh, urgent uh, peril uh, for, for his son. He is in a great crisis, and he comes to Jesus and finds him and um, brings this situation before him. And Jesus decides, out of all that is going on, that he is going to deal with this man. Now, this man, we're told in verse 46, was a nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Um, it's translated that way. That, the word here is kingdom or king. It's not that he's a king, but he works for the king. So it should be translated royal official. So this is someone who worked in the household or for the government of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was a, a relation of the Herod you're probably most aware of, the one who slaughtered uh, the innocents around Charles, uh, Christ's birth, Herod the Great. Uh, th this is a younger relation of him, and he is reigning over this region at this time. This nobleman, this official, works for him in his government. <clears throat> so I, I want to point that out to you. These things get passed over. Um, that would be the equivalent today of someone arriving in our church this morning who worked for the president or who, who was a secretary of a senator or something like that or someone who worked uh, in the Congress, someone with power, someone who worked for the governor of the state or was even in the cabinet, something like that. And they arrive and their child is about to die. Now, Jesus is interested in these people, um, and it's important for us to remember that. You may look at them and say, these people in power, and you label them as Republican or Democrat, or, you know, the swamp is corrupted in Washington and so on. Well, indeed it is, and so was Herod's swamp, very corrupted. But there are people like this, and they come into real crisis just as if your child was about to die, and you were urgent about it, someone who's very rich and has power and who lives in that different world than us, uh, their trials are exactly the same. And not many mighty and noble are called. Not many, but Jesus calls powerful people and rich people uh, to himself. And there are lots of examples of that. We know that one of the women that actually sustained Christ's ministry financially was the wife of Shusa, uh, Herod Steward. Um, there's another person that's working in the royal household, and she supported Christ. We know that when Paul was spreading the gospel uh, throughout the known world at the time, he came before great governors like King Agrippa, uh, and Felix and Festus, and then Caesar himself. And Paul was adamant that, yes, you must call the unknowns, and they will fill the church membership. But these people 
are the same as us. They're on their way to hell, and they're in positions of power, and that brings with it special temptations. They have money, power, influence, control, freedoms that we don't have, and they're open to sin, and you look at them and say, look how sinful their life is, when the truth is, if most people had that amount of money and power, they would fall into many of these sins themselves. This man, whatever he is spiritually right now, he knows that it's messianic fever. It is the generation of the arrival of the Messiah. And many people are saying that this person is the Messiah. And he was in Jerusalem and raising the lame and driving out diseases and healing the blind and so on. And his son is about to die and he drops everything and walks the 25 miles from Capernaum to Canaan just to find Jesus. And it is urgent. We are told that his son is sick at the end of verse 46, whose son was sick in Capernaum. He wasn't just sick like I tell you I was sick last week. This means without strength, drained of all strength, and languishing. Later in verse 47, the next verse, he implored Christ to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And the word there is literally, he was about to leave in death. He was in the midst of departing. We might say in our language, he's at death's door. He's, and the door is wide open, and he's about to go through death's door. This child is seriously unwell. We're told later that the fever left him once Jesus acted. And that fever means to burn up and to be on fire. So this child has a virus, bacterial infection, a condition. He is extremely unwell, and it's killing him, and he's about to die. Now, you can imagine the man's predicament. He lives in a world where things are not easily medicated. When children get sick like this, they die. There is no running to find an ultimate solution. When children are sick this way, there aren't antibiotics in these things like we have. This child is going to die. Now, that trains the mind. Um, if it happens to one of us in this day, when children are this sick and they're at death's door, that invokes in us a panic and determination and uh, problem solving and commitment and prioritization. Um, it's not the most, it, it doesn't reach the thing we should prioritize the most often, which is actually, is the person saved and am I saved? in the one that's dealing with it, we focus on death is serious and it's permanent and I need to do all I can to stop it and save my child or this person. That's all that matters, the treatment. But there is a spirit, a soul, and there is the person that's dealing with it. What I mean by that is this, someone really wealthy comes and even comes to the church and says, can you pray for my child? Or they go to a Catholic priest and say, can you bless my child? And the, all the focus is on the mortality of the child and continuing our best life now. It's not often the salvation of the child and it isn't, the questions aren't even asked about whether the parent is even saved. All that matters is the death. And death is a big problem. I, I actually preached on death uh, last time. The death is a big problem because of how final it is. But it's a big problem because of the spiritual status of the person when they die. That's why it's a problem. Death isn't a problem if you're saved. But, and, and you see this. Uh, people in our culture, this levels us uh, because the poor often die, but when it's someone powerful or someone rich, I can remember in the UK, um, a few of our prime ministers had great trials like this brought upon them by God. Uh, David, David Cameron, the UK prime minister, had a paraplegic son uh, who I think he didn't live beyond 12 or 13, and he died 
while he was Prime Minister. His predecessor, Gordon Brown, uh, who grew up in a Church of Scotland manse and uh, was from a Presbyterian family, he was Prime Minister and uh, they had a child die just a few days after birth. This happens to powerful people. They're human just like us and God brings it to me, brings it to you and our children are at death's door and what can we do about it? We trust in the medication and all these things because we have it. But children do die. Even the children of believers, baptized children, die. We have to reckon with that, that that's coming through the sign here. Jesus' first sign is to come to someone who's about to die. And it tells us that we are going to die. It tells us not just that viruses come in and cause fevers, but it tells us that inside of us there is a spiritual disease anyway that, that is bringing about the physical disease. You and I have a virus, as I said to you last Lord's Day. We have it. We have a dynamic bacterial infection called sin, and, and it will inflame our souls. It will amass itself and multiply and take hold and it will affect us spiritually, our spiritual organs. And it disorders us spiritually and makes us behave in the wrong way and so on, just as a virus does to the body. We have that and we have what flows from it, the judicial punishment or the judicial infliction of an actual physical death. You and I need to reckon with that. Here it is very early on in these signs. Jesus just puts it up there front and center. You are going to die. Your children are going to die. You are dying spiritually and dying physically. That is what defines man now. Not that he was made in the image of God in a garden. The predicament is that we're dying. That's it. And that's why Jesus came. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that life must be delivered into a soul. Whether the child is dying of leukemia, and I don't see these things lightly, we've had this in my own family, whether the child is born and their lungs don't work, which has happened to me personally, people die. People die. And we die because of sin. This is what our catechism says in the 28th question. What are the punishments of sin in this world? The punishments of sin in this world are either inward, like blindness of mind and a seared conscience, things like that. It mars us that way. But they are outward too. The curse of God upon all creatures for our sakes, all other evils that befall us in our bodies and in our names and estates and relations and employments together with death itself. So the, th the evil that befalls us in our bodies... Any evil that happens to our name and reputation, anything that happens to our household and family that's evil, anything in our relationships that is evil, and anything in our employment and labor for the Lord in this world that happens that is evil, it's all because of sin. Man sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, and he placed this upon them, and it multiplies each time that's regenerated, each time new people are born. It'll happen to my children. They look so beautiful and cute and innocent, but, but the seed is in there, and the pronouncement is upon our children. Now, we pronounce other things on our children, baptism and so on, and we give them the gospel, but man is mortal, and sin is working away in him. That's us. That's us. In Adam, all die. Only in Christ are we made alive. So this man, like a father today, would try anything naturally. Medicine or human ingenuity or human help. Maybe he had some rabbis prey upon his child. That happened back then. Rabbis would put certain medicines and do certain ceremonies upon the child, supposedly that God would bless. Rabbis would especially pray for children. And there were reports that they would pray and then the child would be revived and it was attributed to the rabbi. We'll come to that in a few minutes. This man may have done things, but he hears about what's happened and he wants to know for himself and he comes to Jesus. And I don't think he just wants to know. The way he speaks to Jesus it seems to be at least outwardly at the moment. 
He believes Jesus can do this. When, verse 47, he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and to heal his son. He thinks that Christ can do this based on what he's heard about him. This man may have heard uh, what John the Baptist said about Christ and John the Baptist's great ministry. He may have heard that this man somehow turned water into wine. He may have heard about healings in Jerusalem and that this may be the Messiah who brings redemption to Israel. And he goes to him and literally, we're told, he begs him. He begs him. He implores in verse 47. He begs him to heal his son, for his son is about to die. Now that's good in the passing uh, as we uh, uh, close down uh, this point. That's good that he goes to him. He goes to Christ and begs him, and that's where you should always go. He pleads with Christ, and that's where you should always plead. Whether it's one of these physical problems and calamities, or for your own heart and spirit that is also has a fever and that is also unwell. Even in Christ, some of us this morning may be unwell. And it's to Christ we must go and say, take away this despair. Take away this bitterness. Uh, take away this unbelief. Take away this difficulty. Take away this constant temptation to do this. Take away this desire for wealth and prominence or whatever it might be. Take away my idolatry of myself or my spouse or my family or my work. Whatever it is, and I'm just mentioning these as, as they occur, there's lots of things that we need to go to Christ with to cure. But he is the one that we must go. As his chief apostle Peter says to him a few chapters later in the synagogue in Capernaum when everyone else abandons Jesus, and Jesus says to him, will you go also? And he says, to whom else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom else can we go? We must go when those sicknesses come in and there is an emergency, we go to Christ. But when things are stable and there are no emergencies, but underneath there's this gradual unspoken emergency of spiritual deadness, we must go to Christ. If you feel spiritually dead this morning as a believer, go to Christ. Just bow on your knees and beg him. Don't speak formally to him. Beg him. Groans are better than S's if we mean them when we pray unto the Lord. If you really want to be enlivened, is there any record of Jesus being asked to heal someone who really means it and who wants to believe? Is there any record of him just saying, no, I don't want to? That's what's remarkable about him, man. That he answers all of these. Now, we have to marry that somehow in our experience because we know that God doesn't answer all prayer affirmatively. There's lots of people that pray for all kinds of things and the answer is no. But when it comes to wanting to be spiritually well, do you think God's response is it's wise just to not do this? If you feel spiritually dead or there is a sin that, is, that you're impaled upon or you feel you've sinned away his mercy and that you can't come back to him. And what if everyone in the church knows what goes on in your heart? Take it to Christ and say, make me clean. Turn my heart to you. Fill me with your love. Fill me with faith and expectation and vitality to serve you. Oh, go to Christ. We have not because we ask not or we ask amiss. 
Go to him, the fountain of grace, and he will bring that to you. For he is the only one that can do so. And this man didn't come in his mind for spiritual healing for himself, but for death. But what's emitted to us in this sign, what's displayed to us, is that whether it's physical death or the inner spiritual death that we have that causes that death, spiritual or physical, John tells the whole world loudly in this gospel that it's God's Son that deals with that. God deals with death, spiritual and physical, by his Son, the life of God in his Son. Christ doesn't say, God has life, and I am the way and the truth to that life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. The life of God is in Jesus Christ. The fullness of all of God's life is in Jesus Christ. And he, the prophets tell us in the Old Testament, he, Isaiah chapter 25, will swallow up death forever. And that's a very graphic thing that Isaiah tells us. It's not a nice swallowing there. It's to devour or gobble it up. To devour as a lion would just devour. Jesus swallows up death forever. And it wouldn't harm him ultimately. He can take it. He doesn't just give you an injection so you wouldn't die. Isaiah presents it vividly. He swallows death up. It's no match for Jesus. He can save you spiritually and physically. And he can save your children. At a moment's notice, he can transfer you and your children from death and bondage and sin and brokenness and being enchained to it and set you at liberty in the life that he gives. This man doesn't know who he's come to. Heal my son. And Jesus looks at him and says, I swallow up death and I'll save your son but I'll deal with you too. I am the life. Only God can do such things, but that's okay. Because it's God that's standing there in Cana. This man didn't realize he's asking God to do this. It's God that he's looking in the face. He is a desperate father. Secondly, under our second heading, he is a powerful savior. In verse 48, Christ responds, then Jesus said unto him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, that's a surprising response. It's not what you expect. You expect a lot of the time when Christ is asked this, that he just addresses the issue itself, the issue that's presented to him. There's a boy dying, there's no time to spare. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Um, <clears throat> he may be speaking generally that there's people around and the general expectation of the Jews of seeing signs outwardly and only believing those signs. Or it may be specifically that Jesus knew this man's heart or this man being affected by the way everyone uh, is thinking in Galilee. Um, I don't know if it's, it, it can't be the case that this man is in desperation about his son and arrives to see Christ and says to him, I'm desperate to see a miracle to see if you can prove who you are. That's not his focus. He didn't go there to see signs and wonders. But he's representative of the people. I think the best way of putting it is this. The people in Galilee only care if Jesus can do these signs and wonders. Because that will prove he's Messiah and then he will be king. And they are feeling that. They are focused on the outward. They're not thinking about their souls. They don't think they're in bondage. The Gentiles are in bondage. 
We're not in bondage. We're God's people. Famously, they say to him, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Wow. Know thyself. That's what we're like. These people are under the Romans and they're in their sin. And they look Jesus in the eye and say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Do you say that? Do I often say that? We're reformed and justified and set free. Our brother, a pastor, is preaching through biblical liberty. We, we say we're free. We've never been enslaved to anyone, and we're not enslaved right now. Well, there, you know there's ways we can be enslaved. These people aren't concerned about whether they're saved, a lot of them. As far as they're concerned, they are saved. But they want to see a sign. And that's all they care about. And this man comes and says, my son's about to die. And Christ knows if I just heal him, they're only going to focus on the sign. So he deals with the father first, which is so wise and so godlike. And it's never what you or I would do. He's so different than us. Your child is sick. How is your child? We're going to go, we need to visit your child. We'll go to the child and we'll focus on the child, pray for the child. But what about the parents? Jesus often does this. A parent comes to him and says, my child. And Jesus says, what about you? What about you want me to heal your child? Do you need healed? Do you need healed? A man brought his son to Christ in the gospel of Luke at the foot of a mountain, demon possessed. And Jesus, in essence, said to him, do you believe? Uh, a man born blind in, in the gospel comes to Christ and his need is that he would physically see. And Jesus says to him, do you believe in me? Lazarus dies later in this gospel, a friend of Jesus. And it's a great family event and there's a funeral to attend and so on. And Christ arrives and his sister comes weeping to, to him. And the focus is that Lazarus has died. And if you'd been here, he would not have died. And Christ, in essence, sister, Martha, do you believe in me? He often does this. People even bring their children to Christ. And he will not heal the person immediately, but he will turn to there's a fever in your child. Your child is dying. Well, let's, let's look at your soul. Are you saved? Are you dying inside? Or even as believers, we can do that. We bring our children to the Lord. They are sick. They have COVID. Or they might actually be in an ICU on a ventilator. And we come to the Lord and say, my child but the Lord is trying to say something to us sometimes. Is there a sickness in your soul? It's not that the other thing doesn't matter. But we're always bringing our children to the Lord as sinners. There's always something wrong. We usually need to be put right. Well, this goes on here. He, I don't think he's a Christian that just needs his faith or unbelief or lukewarmness put right. But that he's not yet placed his trust in Christ fully in salvation. He certainly believes in his mind Christ can heal this boy. But Jesus says this to make clear to him, okay, it's urgent. You're, you've come to me about your son. He's about to die. But I'm not just going to immediately address that. Let me say this to you. Unless you all see signs and wonders and focus on miracles and not focus on your own sin and forgiveness... You will, have, you will by no means believe. See, the issue there in verse 48, look at Christ's words carefully. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What's the important word in that sentence? It's believe. Believe. That's what's needed to save the boy and to save us in our families. Believe. It's not signs and wonders that save us. It's believing. So Christ addresses that with the man. And the man implores him again in verse 49. Sir, come down before my child dies. 
Sir, Lord, come down before my child dies. After Jesus makes his point about signs and wonders, he knows he's going to heal the boy. And he's going to test the man, which we're about to see in a couple of minutes. But understand that as Jesus makes the decision. This isn't just about him flipping a switch and the boy being okay. There's a spiritual reason Jesus does it this way. But Jesus decides to heal the boy. And it is remarkable. He simply says to the man in verse 50, Go your way, your son lives. Go your way, your son lives. And we're told later that at that point, at that very hour, the fever left the boy, he stopped burning up, and the virus or whatever condition was killing him was gone. At that moment, when Jesus said this. So the boy is saved from death. The boy is saved from the, the ravages of sin in his body. And he's raised up and saved from the jaws of death. Jesus is displaying his glory in it. And it's all in verse 50. Go your way. Your son lives. And all of that occurred because of Jesus' decision. Now, there's several things to say about uh, this uh, in verse 50. <clears throat> it's not maybe apparent to you as you just read it, but there's several things to say about it. Um, the first is, he, Jesus doesn't go with him and make his way to Capernaum and lay his hands on the boy or rub clay upon him or tell him to wash anywhere. Jesus doesn't spit upon his hands and do anything. Jesus doesn't touch him. He isn't even anywhere near him. And that's on purpose. Remember what I told you about those rabbis that they pray to God and they go and they carry out these ceremonies to try and save a child? Jesus specifically does it this way so that there's no confusion about that, that he's, there's a completely different category for him altogether. He doesn't go with him. He doesn't go near the boy. He doesn't touch the boy. He never even sees him. Second, he doesn't pray. Now you might say, well, that, I'm used to that because I'm a Christian and I know Jesus' words, but it's very significant. It's early in the gospel. He doesn't call upon God. I read to you about Elisha in the Old Testament stretching out upon him, pacing backwards and forwards, praying, lay my staff upon him. Jesus doesn't do any of this. Jesus doesn't call upon God, his Father. Jesus doesn't pray and request any power to do this. Outwardly, Jesus isn't even consulting in that way. He just says, your son lives. It's coming from him. He's not deriving it or dependent in another way. He just says it himself. Now, what do these things say to us? That he didn't go there and that he didn't ask God and say it in front of people, please, Lord, please, my Father, do this. What does it show us in this sign as Jesus deals with death? It shows us the glory of the fact that Jesus was present at their home when he wasn't there physically. Remember what this gospel is about. He is God's only begotten son. And these things are written that you might believe that he is God's only son, the Christ, and that believing you would have life in his name. And if you're going to survive as a Christian and call upon the Lord and negotiate situations in your Christian life, you need to know that's who he is in this way. That when you're calling upon God and you're doing it in the name of Christ and by his mediation and so on, you're not calling someone who's far away and up there. There's a sense in which he is in his holy temple and highly exalted. But the point is he's not sending down answers and arrows from heaven into hospital rooms in that way from afar. 
The point is, he's already there. Now, the Jews would have said, we know God's there. We know God's spirit is there. But that's not the point of the glory of the Messiah. The point isn't that God's spirit is there. God's spirit is everywhere anyway. He is omnipresent. And the children, um, omni is all, and present is, speaks for itself. So and that God is omnipresent means he's everywhere. If God is omnipotent, potent is power and ability. So God has all ability. So omnipresent means he's everywhere, and omnipotent means he is all-powerful. Now, the Jews say that about God. He's all-powerful, but that's not the point. The point is that Jesus possesses these characteristics. And, and they don't know that. There is no way even John is looking at Jesus saying, this is Jehovah who fills all things and he's everywhere. They aren't saying that with that clarity. Jesus says in a prior chapter when he's sitting with Nicodemus, a lot of you know his conversation with Nicodemus, um, in chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus in verse 13, Nicodemus, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. So what he said to Nicodemus. He says that while he's sitting there with him, that yes, there's a way you can say he came down from heaven, but as bad preachers say, he left heaven for us and so on. He didn't leave heaven. The son of man who is in heaven, he's filling heaven the whole time. He's walking around Galilee. But he did become what he was not. He's located himself in in his human nature, in his body and soul. Jesus is there in Galilee. That's true. But it's not because he left heaven. He's in heaven and he's in Galilee. And that omnipresence that God is everywhere, that means Jesus in his spirit, in his divine nature, in his equality with the Father, Christ is everywhere. In his general presence, he's everywhere. God fills all things. Jesus is present throughout this world and throughout the cosmos and in heaven. He's everywhere. But his, what's sometimes called his special presence or his covenantal presence, that yes, God is everywhere, but when he's going to reveal himself and make his mercy and grace known, he relates to us, he comes near us in a close way. And that's sometimes referred to as a special presence. It's not just that there is a God, but that I'm interacting with that God right here. His presence is with me. Now, that, both of those are true of Christ. So that's important for you to know. It's not just a fact. Um, it's for your practical benefit. Whatever you are, however much things fall apart, you might be in an ICU, in a hospital. You might be on a bus somewhere. You might have to go to another country. You might be in a situation where relationships have broken down and you're in another room and you're weeping, bowing on the floor, and you say, I don't feel that God is with me. It's very important to remember that Jesus is in all these places, very much so. He's in an apartment in Rio de Janeiro. He... If you, if you ascend a mountain in Mongolia, he's there. And he's in your house in Dallas all of the time. That should actually unnerve you in some ways. He's in these places all the time. He doesn't send some special request through the air to Capernaum to heal this boy. In his human nature, he just stands there in authority from his own person and said, your son lives. And because he is God and Father, Son, and Spirit fill all things, Father, Son, and Spirit are upon him within that boy's body, are imminent upon it. And with the authority of the Son of God, when Jesus commands that it is so, it is so. Even though he wasn't there, it was Jesus who healed that boy because he was there spiritually. Friend, Satan is interested in this truth. He'll make you feel isolated. The truth is, Christ is always there. He may hide his face from you, but beg him to reveal himself. Remember that Christ is there. It's not just that he's there, but it's the power of his word 
that heals this boy. And that's important. He doesn't pray and request it. He commands it. And it's not a command that he asks for his father to ratify, if I can put that respectfully. It just seems to be that when Christ does things like this, when he says these things, it's coming with the full authority of God because he is God. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't ask anything. He just declares it to be so that this son lives and the son does live. What does that tell the people who are there? And what does it tell you and me in our Christian lives? That the Christ we talk about, that the Christ you believe in, that the Christ whose name is at the end of every one of our prayers, uh, this Christ has the omnipotence of God. That he is God. Just by his word, he does this. Notice it in verse 50. Your son lives, so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. The word. This gospel opened, I told you, uh, weeks ago. In the beginning was the word. That it's the word that created all things. It's the word from God that brought all things into being. That dynamic, powerful, life-giving word that stretches out this universe, that holds it in place, that brings together stars burning in their nuclear fusion and power, that holds gravity in place, that says to the grass and the trees, come forth, and they come, that makes all life and animals and creatures, that made light and that made atoms and all of these things. That word, that word that takes dust and makes a man and takes of his side and bone and DNA and builds another human, a woman, from that material so they function together as one, the one who made us all, the Word. It's all done by the Word. And John is saying, that's all done by the Word. It's huge. But don't miss, he says, that when a boy is healed or eyes are opened or the deaf hear, it is being done by the same Word. It's the same power that's being unleashed there. The creative and restorative power of an infinitely powerful God. Christ is an infinitely powerful God. He speaks and it is done. He speaks and illness is removed. He speaks and illness comes. He speaks and the soul that is sick, not the body, the soul that is sick, is made alive by the speech of God, by the word of God. By it preached, by it read, by you and held, and by the presence of Christ himself, who is the word, dynamically working together, word comes in, and just as it spoke into darkness and said light, and all the light was there, so... He comes into the soul and says light, or here, to the sick, bound, virused soul of me or you or any lost person in Dallas. And the only thing that will drive the sickness out, the only thing that will drive sin out, is the word of Christ. He said, your son lives. <clears throat> and the boy lived. He says to any man or woman who's a sinner and lost and can't see and can't move and can't be touched and whose will can't be moved, he just says to them, live, live. And the word comes into them and it is what brings forth life. How much we should pray when we share the gospel, when we speak to our children, 
when we speak to people at work, oh, we will get, you know, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and Francis Schaeffer and, and John Calvin lined up in a row and go in with arguments about morality and so on. No, you need to pray and deliver the word because the only thing that will unlock that mind is the word of Christ. It's only if he says to the person in your office, live will they live. Bring the word to these people with a prayer for the spirit of Christ because that word being delivered is the only thing that will drive out the virus of sin and redeem that person from death. So, he is everywhere. He is present in all of your trials and emergencies, and he can be called upon. And his word is the word you need to encourage and lift you up in those trials and emergencies, and to give wisdom on the choices that are made. But more importantly, his word is the only word that saves any of us from physical death, but mostly from spiritual death itself. Now I just say to you, friend, man, woman, child, all that matters is, has your soul received that life? Has the virus been driven out? That's all that matters. Lastly, as we close, um, our final heading, A Believing Faith, the man believed this word. The man believed this word. Um, Go your way, your soul, your, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Now, and I am closing with this. Uh, he, he, as I said to you, believed intellectually already that Jesus could heal people. That's a given. But what happens here is that Jesus tests him. Uh, he doesn't heal him in front of the Father. He says, it is so, your son is healed. And that tests his belief in Jesus. The man must go with only the word. He doesn't see the sign. He doesn't have anything accompanying it, just the word. And he must go with it. And it's clear then from the text that the man began to believe. He embraced this. He didn't go there doubting if his son would live. It said he believed the word that Jesus said. And he tests him. This man didn't see it right away. It's the afternoon when this happens. And there's a long journey to walk back to Capernaum. Probably overnight. And Jews wouldn't travel in the night because of the dangers. This man has to get back to Capernaum. And all he has are these words. Your son lives when jesus presents his word to us and speaks whatever promise it is in scripture call on me in the day of trouble i will answer you i can forgive your sin there remains these three faith hope and love but the greatest of these is love or humble yourself under the mighty hand of god and he will exalt you in due season when he delivers his word to you he will usually test it. He wouldn't do the thing right away. And you must believe in that word while you wait the deliverance or outcome. There's more to be said on that in another time. But this man did wait and the word was alive in him. And when he got home, the servants told him that it had occurred. And he not only believed, but his wife and his whole household believed too. They had never met Jesus Because you don't need to meet Jesus physically to know him and love him. And you don't need him to be physically in in the hospital room to heal someone. You know him by faith in the hospital room. And you can love him now because of the word. You don't need to see him physically to love him. One day you will see him physically. But that is not what's needed. You must by faith believe the word friend has your soul lived beg christ for a living soul amen may god bless the preaching of his word to us 
uh, this morning. Let's stand to pray. Everlasting God, uh, we pray we would know Christ in this way. Uh, the one whose word is life. And that our souls this morning need that life. For any outside of the kingdom, they need touched by that life. And for Christ to say to them, your soul lives. Help us, if we are concerned for our children, to understand that when we go to Christ, he will look us in the eye and he will address our souls first, whether to save us or to deal with us according to our spiritual condition too. We pray for every Christian here, whatever condition they are in. We all have the sickness of sin, and we ask that you would drive it out, and that we would live evermore unto the perfect day, and that sin would be put to death more and more as we follow Christ and love him. O Lord, make us live. Make our joy and holiness live in our souls. Make our faith live. Make our expectation live. And may we be bold with the gospel and go with it that others may live too. And all of the graces of your people, humility and patience and long-suffering, lowness and gentleness, meekness, self-control, we pray that these things would live in us and that all that is of the flesh would die. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.